You're listening to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny, a podcast celebrating the unsung festivities that won't be found on any normal calendar. This show is presented every two weeks by a mother-son duo who like to keep it safe for work. I'm Bryce, the son. I'm Misty, the mom. And you can reach out to us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny for Instagram and Facebook and at Don't Tell the EAS1 for Twitter. Or you can email us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. No special characters or space. Okay, let's hop to it. Welcome back to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny. This is our second episode and is also part two of June 2019 series of holidays. You did not have to listen to the first episode. They are standalone episodes, but as we go through the months, there will be two parts. This one will be concluding with the last two weeks of June. We have four more coming your way to finish out the month of June. And I have two of them, June 19th. National Garfield the Cat Day, and June 23rd, Pink Flamingo Day. And incidentally, I also chose a holiday on June 19th, so you'll have to celebrate two different holidays on the same date. But for June 19th, we have World Sauntering Day, and for June 28th, it is Paul Bunyan Day. Should I get started? Yeah, go for it, Mom. All right, so I'll take the first holiday, June 19th. National Garfield the Cat Day. I love Garfield the Cat. So the reason it's June 19th, it was published June 19th, 1978, and Jim Davis is a creator. He named Garfield after his grandfather because he said that his grandfather was large and cantankerous. It had broad appeal from the start because there was no political commentary and no social commentary, and that has not changed in all the years since 1978. And it actually paid off big because it was the most syndicated strip in 2002. It was in 2,570 newspapers and 263 million readers worldwide were reading it just three years after it debuted. And (laughs) instead of Garfield, we could actually be reading and watching Norm the Net. Isn't that that gray cat that Garfield hangs out with? No, no, that's normal. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we'll talk about him in a few minutes because, yeah, normal Garfield hates normal. I mean, this cute little kitten comes into his life, and, yeah, he can't stand him. But, no, Norm Nat, G-N-O-R-M-G-N-A-T. Like the bug. Like the bug. Okay. Exactly. So that was the problem. Jim Davis came up with this character, Norm Nat, And he took his comic strip to different publishers. And basically, he was told he had wonderful jokes, wonderful writing, beautiful, I don't know what you call it, drawings. Sure, the comic aspect to it. But no one would like anything based on bugs. I know so many people who love insects. (laughs) Like, it would be the whole, like, movie of ants or... What was A Bug's Life? Yes, it's kind of funny to think about now, but back then, in the mid-70s, he was told, no, they don't have enough appeal. But like you said, I mean, later, Bug's Life and Ants, and there were a couple others out there, but they really did take off. But anyway, I am so glad that someone basically closed the door on that, but that he persisted, and he did Garfield. And the reason that he came up with Garfield was he decided when he was told that he was a great writer and great artist 
that he didn't want to give up on it, but he started to really look at the at the cart, uh, comics out during that time and kind of see, you know, what was appealing to people. He noticed that dogs were appealing to people a lot, but there were too many dog comic strips already out there. So he decided that he would actually do it on a cat because he didn't find any comics based on cats. So versus like Snoopy or Marmaduke, he saw there were way too many canines out there. Yeah, so he said that they were doing really, really well. So he's like, hey, obviously, you know, um, pets and animals like that are are great things. So he decided to actually base it on cats. He grew up with cats. I don't know if this is really brought out in the cartoon series, but on Garfield.com, their official website, it talks a little bit more about it. He grew up in Muncie, Indiana. He grew up there along with a bunch of cats. Most of the characters in his comics actually come from Muncie, Indiana, and people who he actually met or knew about and animals that he kind of knew about. So going back to the idea of like picking out his grandpa to be (laughs) a big fat cat, he said, all right, all these other characters too, I'm just going to pluck this entire town and put it into a comic. Exactly. That is pretty much what he did. Like life through the eyes of Muncie and Deanna, but through the eyes of a cat. Okay. Yeah. So actually, yeah, that's that's an interesting... um, Kind of observation. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, observation. Well, and so another thing too is it originally centered on a human character instead of the cat. But the same thing, he went back to get it published again, and they said, okay, you know, you get closer, but I'm sorry, the human just doesn't have any appeal. So that's when he refocused it on the cat. So it became instead of John, who's Garfield's owner, it became focused on Garfield himself and his antics and things like that. But (laughs) the Chicago Times actually dropped it, even with the cat, just going, it's not, you know, it's not appealing enough, not enough readers or whatever. Ouch. So, (laughs) So they dropped it. He was in other ones at the time, but Chicago Times dropped it. Well, there was such an outcry that they had to bring it back again. And I, I was thinking, could you imagine if that was today and with social media? Like, the tweets and the firestorm of tweets that would be coming out right now. There are some common themes in the comic strip. Do you know any of those? Obviously, Garfield's associated with several of them. Oh, I could not say. You want to give me a hint? Oh, let's see. Rainy days and something always get him down. Mondays. Yeah, so he definitely has a disdain for Mondays. He has an obsession with a couple types of food. Okay, I I know lasagna (laughs) is one. Are there more food items he's interested in? And actually, I didn't know one of them, which is funny. I guess I think of it more as John rather than Garfield. Okay. On my shirt. Uh, you are wearing a donut, but also a pig, so uh, <laughs> I'll go with the donut. Yeah, so, well, we just lost power. <laughs> we sure did. Hope we didn't lose a recording either. No, I don't think we did, because on battery. <laughs> uh, do you want to finish your Garfield If story? I can read it, I guess I can try. We can try. And do you want it. the flashlight? Oh, that's all right. Okay, so donuts... 
that's probably going to beep all the time. But, okay, um, so yes, yeah, so he loves donuts. And we talked about last week in the episode, the 5K that we did. That was the Garfield Halloween 5K. And that same company actually does a 5K with donuts and it's a Garfield one again. So he loves donuts. I am actually wearing a donut 5K shirt, but this one was a different 5K, which maybe I'll talk about sometime, but basically it was all you could eat donuts about halfway through the 5K. But yeah, so there's a donut 5K based on Garfield because of his love of donuts. Now I'm starting to connect the dots because <laughs> before it was like, all right, yeah, Garfield is here, at least in spirit. There is like a picture of him, but it didn't really make any sense for all the other aspects to it. Yeah, so, I mean, lasagna, donuts, and then the other one, so I didn't know, was coffee. And I've, I do find that one interesting because, I mean, I've cut out every comic strip, basically. There was, you know, back when I was growing up. I do remember coffee being in it, but I really remember that more as John. But maybe I just wasn't observant back then. I was little, reading it to look at Garfield more, so. I kind of remember both John and Garfield having, like, the same bathrobe. And then they also had a coffee mug that they would keep up by their faces. I kind of forgot the robe. But now I remember Garfield having a blanket. He always got like in a box. I don't know if it was a lasagna box or whatever. But he had that blanket on top of him. So he kind of had that bed. But yeah, I forgot that John actually had the robe. All right, if you hear weird noises going on, we are actually doing this in the dark now because we do have a storm here and our power just went off. So we will see how long we can make it here on batteries. But if you're hearing all the crazy noises, there are some different things going off in the house. Okay, so there's other cast members, characters, obviously, besides John John Arbuckle. (laughs) I can't say that. John Arbuckle, who is Garfield's owner, and it's kind of, you know, he's not lazy, but he definitely is kind of mellow. Laid back. Yeah, yeah. laid back. Um, a little awkward. Yeah, definitely a little awkward. <laughs> I mean, he gets out. Do you remember that? I don't remember if it was a film or just a cartoon or something where John went out to go impress, like, his love interest and was dancing in oh, that blue yeah. suit. <laughs> I forgot about that one. See, I I love the original Garfield. So, yes, I went to see all the movies and stuff, but I don't remember them as much because I really like the original Garfield. But anyway, the rest of the cast includes Odie. Of course, the dog. The dumb dog that poor Garfield is just terrorizing all the time. There's Arlene, the pink kitty cat. Okay, yeah. Who wants to be Garfield's girlfriend. But, of course, Garfield really doesn't want anything to do with her. The one you brought up, Nermal. Yes. The cute kitten. So, here we go. We got a cute kitten coming around. And, basically, you know, he's just cute. So, he takes away the spotlight from Garfield and he doesn't like that. The last main character. Do you know who I'm forgetting? Uh... Small enough to carry around. Garfield's personal friend. I don't know those. Pookie. Pookie? Yeah, his stuffed teddy bear. Oh. Yeah, 
cookies and stuffed teddy bears. So that's the main cast of characters. Once again, of course, there's been others. There's moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas in there, but that's the main core group. The look of Garfield has actually changed over the years. It changed close to the mid-1980s. And I don't, I mean, Jim Davis defends why he does this, but honestly, I don't like the new Garfield as much and the look of the new Garfield. He has definitely taken on a more cartoony look, but also a more person type look. He now has legs now at the back that he can actually stand and walk on like yeah. a person. His paws are more like hands now. And the reason that Jim Davis created him that way, or I guess morphed him into that, he said was so he could actually have an easier time of pushing Odie off of tables. That's a good, uh, you know, useful tool to have uh, paws that can just go whoop, bye dog. Oh, but he's terrorizing poor Odie more. And then the other reason is so he could grab a piece of pie easier. But the original Garfield, like I said, the stuffed animal that I had looked like this was literally a big, it looked like a cat. It literally looked like a big fat cat. And his eyes were squinted more. He definitely sat like a cat. He couldn't stand up. He had paws and was very, very, very fat. Oh, that was another thing. So Jim Davis actually has made the new Garfield skinnier. So he's more agile to push Odie off of the, the table. Those are contradictory traits to have the fat cat be agile. Although, to be fair, our cats are the same. They are fat and they can go from one part of the room to the next set so stealthily that you're like, where did this big mound come from? So Jim Davis, if you are listening, I like the original Garfield better. The look of the original Garfield. And talking about stuffed animals, I actually had a stuffed Garfield. He was the original Garfield, the original look. And basically, I begged my grandma and grandpa for him. So at my birthday, they actually bought me the original stuffed animal of Garfield. The sad thing is that, along, well, so let me step back. And I also love Garfield so much that I wanted, back then, you know, a lot of cartoons coming out on TV. Animation was starting to be big in television. We had the the Saturday morning series where they had all the different cartoons, but Garfield wasn't on it. So I actually wrote a letter to Jim Davis and said, Garfield needs to be on TV or it needs to be an animated cartoon, not a comic strip. Amazingly enough, he actually wrote back, and I do think it was him, not an assistant, because it was on Garfield Stationery. It was so cute. But it was signed by him, and it was actually his signature, and it was not a stamp. You could actually tell that it was like a red red marker or a red pen. So that was kind of cool. I didn't expect him to write back at all. And I don't really remember the whole effect to it, but it was something like, oh, thank you for reaching out, and yeah, that would be great to have. So I kind of feel, you know, maybe I should take a little bit of credit for getting Garfield on TV because it was only a couple years later that he actually showed up on TV. How old were you? I was, gosh, that was, um, that would have been early 80s. So I was somewhere like seven, eight 
going back to my sad thing about my stuffed animal, I don't have the stuffed animal anymore, and I don't have the letter anymore. I actually had the stuffed animal, the letter, and I had a scrapbook totally full of every day I would cut out the Garfield comic strip, and I put it in the scrapbook. But we actually had a huge hailstorm, and we had just moved into this house, so we still had a lot of our stuff out in a shed. Unfortunately, the shed got totally destroyed in the hailstorm and destroyed everything inside, including all of my Garfield memorabilia. That's... Uh... <laughs> I know. I mean, I know he's destroyed. I don't know what he looked like because we decided that, you know, it was better because it really, I mean, the whole shed had like a ton of memories in it. We decided that was probably better not to look at the memories that we were having to throw out. So we literally just took the boxes and bags and everything and threw them out without knowing what was totally in them. But, I mean, we sort of roughly knew. So I know that, you know, my poor Garfield stuff was in there. I was just sad because I lost all my years of memorabilia and my original Garfield stuffed animal. Oh. Which had been very well loved, by the way. I think it had been in the washing machine a few times. His eyes were kind of beat up and stuff. But anyway. And once again, if you hear things going on crazy in the background, we actually have lights again. Yay! Ooh. And electricity again. But we're still in the middle of a storm, so we could lose it. But that was interesting, actually, doing the podcast in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. That, Testing that was out your eyesight. For us. I mean, we're only on our second episode, but hey, might as well throw everything at us. Sure. Okay, getting back to the facts here. In 1984, Atari created a video game for the Atari 2600. Okay, so in my research, I'm going, I had an Atari. I actually had an Atari um, 400 at the time. But still, I was really, you know, into them and keeping up with them. I'm like, I would have had the Garfield game had I known it was out. So I couldn't believe in my research that there was a Garfield game for the Atari 2600. Well, actually, there wasn't was it? Atari gave up on the idea and canceled the whole project because at the time, licensing and royalty fees were too expensive. So it actually never got made. That's why I didn't have it. I guess so. <laughs> but since then, tons of companies have created video games based on Garfield. We talked about how it was a comic strip. His animation debut, so actually I guess I have the date because you were wondering here, but the animation debut was in Fantastic Funnies on May 15th, 1980. So I had to have written the letter uh, sometime obviously between 78 and 80. There you go. There are actually two official websites for Garfield. So Garfield.com. And then they teamed up to make an educational site for kids. So it's ProfessorGarfield.org. So he has a PhD. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He does have a PhD. So those are all my Garfield facts that I've got. So how should somebody celebrate Gar National Garfield? I think you should go buy, like, 20 Garfield stuffed animals. Like the original plush? Yeah, I think you should, you know, go on eBay and Etsy and some of these sites and just um, look for some old original Garfields. And then and have them send them. them to you. <laughs> yeah, actually, that would be great. Yeah, send them my way. Uh, of course, you can celebrate by watching any of the movies or TV shows out. 
um, or it's still in syndication. So just go, you know, if, if you actually have papers around in your area, go buy a Sunday paper and read the Garfield comic strip. All right, let's do that. All right, it's my turn. And again, this will be on the same day as Garfield Day, but this one is World Sauntering Day, which kind of still fits his demeanor because sauntering is a very, it's another word for strolling, which is what I would imagine uh, Garfield doing on his days off. World Sauntering Day first started off with William T. Rabe, and much unlike the demonstration of Forrest Gump, in the film or in the book where he's running for three years, which takes place in 1970s, the Americans really had a big fad for jogging in 1970s. It was a really big deal at this time, but William T. Rabe, who I'll call Bill for the rest of this time, took note of this and actually was kind of disgusted and turned off by the whole jogging movement, saying we just thought that lazy people should have a viable alternative to jogging. And those are his words. There are a lot of different quotes. I'm, okay, going to I'm be liking this. You know? <laughs> I can really get into that. Did you know there might be more of like a philosophy to sauntering? I, guess, I mean, I could see that, but I guess I would not have thought that. The first thing I would have thought about is the actual action. All right. Well, tune into this quote by Bill. Because he goes into both the action and the philosophy, which is the whole vibe and reason for World Sauntering Day. He says, Sauntering is distinguished from lollygagging, sashaying, jogging, and walking. With sauntering, you go from point X to point Z, skipping point Y, obviously, which means you don't care where you're going, how you're going, or when you get there. The general idea is to smell the roses when you walk and to pay attention to the world around you. Apparently, a lot of other people have actually talked on the idea of sauntering or strolling or any number of words for it as well, such as the French literary extraordinaire and a proponent of 19th century realism, Charles Baudelaire, where he describes the flaneur which is a person, a modern man, with a penchant for flaner or sauntering, saying, The crowd is his element, as the air is that of birds and water of fishes. His passion and his profession are to become one flesh with the crowd. For the perfect flaneur, for the passionate spectator, it is an immense joy to set up house in the heart of the multitude, amid the ebb and flow of movement, in the midst of the fugitive and the infinitive. Finding that the etymology of saunterer actually goes to la santerre, meaning the holy land, or even meaning santerre. I know they sound similar when I say it, but there is a difference. Santerre meaning without home, without kind of this like earthly plane. Well, and it's interesting that they all kind of have this like aspiration of somebody being a part of the moment but also wanting to be separate from in the case of Thoreau and for Chasbolet this idea of you don't go out shopping if you're sauntering you don't want a commercialist aspect to it because you don't want to give into these kind of like the capitalism aspect but more so like the idea that 
you don't want to necessarily be a part of the actions going on. You kind of want to be an observer, but you still want to be within the whole thing of it. I think it's even funnier when you, or more interesting perhaps, when you go into there being requirements as a saunterer for Thoreau. He defines the requirements as thus. If you are ready to leave father and mother and brother and sister and wife and child and friends and never see them again, if you have paid your debts and made your will and settled all your affairs and are a free man, then you are ready for a walk. No wealth can buy the requisite leisure, freedom, and independence which are the capital in this profession. It requires a direct dispensation from heaven to become a walker. Bill also has requirements to being a saunterer. If you know how to saunter, you will know what to wear. Leave the high heels at home and wear something comfortable. Never saunter with a small child. Never saunter with a dog so large that the lady you're with can't carry it in her arms. And there is one more spiritual aspect to Bill's idea of sauntering. There is an unofficial saunterer's prayer by one of his co-patriots and companions that goes, Dear Lord, please don't let me this day work up a sweat. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a perfect prayer for me. <laughs> I, right? It fits very well with the 5K runs we do. Yeah, or more 5K walks. Living in Florida, I don't think that we can get around that no matter what. Just opening the door and not even walking, we sweat. There are going to be droplets everywhere. <laughs> yes. So as for the actual day and its inception, World Sauntering Day officially began on June 19th, 1977. So it's always been June 19th for almost, you know, uh, 40 plus years. And it was at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island in Michigan. And it actually started off with 800 participants. Which, given the fact that he was just doing it with friends and it spread word by mouth, the gathering of 800 people is kind of impressive. And the hotel still continues this tradition, but it's kind of caught up on the idea like, oh, there's going to be a surplus of people who are non-residents and non-residents of the hotel specifically. You do have to pay a fee now, apparently, if you do go onto the island and want to participate in the event. But the the fee for getting in actually goes towards paying for, like, a meal there if you want. And I also thought it was kind of funny, the idea of you're wanting to take your time away and spending it in the here and now and not spending it in worries of capitalism. Yet that's what the hotel has gone on to do. I thought it would be interesting for me to talk about one of the best times I've sauntered, which was in Belgium after a night of a lot of fun, but also of losing my phone. Have I told you this? I don't think so. Okay, so I lost my phone, which was going to be, you know, my everything because I was staying up Bruxelles, Brussels, and I was doing a day trip over the Bruges. I at least had the tickets for the train ride printed out, but everything else, you know, like my maps, were on my phone. 
So I said, okay, might as well still go. I did actually bring my small iPad, but the thing was it didn't have cellular data for it. So I had to work off of Wi-Fi. And you know what? Maybe all of this wouldn't really matter as much, except for I'm also trying to meet up with friends in this town who are going to be contacting me through my phone on Facebook. I had to bring this iPad with me and go to this town, basically take pictures of the town with the map of it and stroll around while looking for my friends at places that I could stop and get some Wi-Fi service. But I will tell you what, I don't think it was necessarily being disconnected from my phone, but just being disconnected from everything, not really knowing where my friends were, not knowing what I was going to do there, because I didn't have any plans. It's a small town, but it's beautiful. It's a medieval town. There are flagstones everywhere, and it's busy in some places, mainly the main street, and then it's less busy in others. But, I mean, I had a wild blast. I go to a chocolate store and I order in French, and the person looks at me and is like, we don't speak French here. And I'm like, this is Belgium. No, this was the Flemish side, so they spoke Flemish or dialect of Dutch. And anyway, he gave me chocolate, and I would go into this verdant green space. Each bite that I took was like, ooh, this just this jingle through my body because of the flavor and everything so green and quiet. Eventually, it went down to windmills along the you know, border of the town, climbed up that, went through a garage sale, but like the entire street was having a garage sale and didn't pick anything up, but it was definitely interesting because I didn't think that was necessarily a worldly idea. I kind of thought it was a very American invention. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't have thought of it either. Um, and perhaps the best part about that trip this specific sojourn to Bruges was that I saw a bunch of people funneling down this alleyway and I'm like okay I'll follow suit and it ended up being one of their large summer festivals it was completely free they had vegetarian burgers they had beer and it was like a thing there were musicians there were performers there was a play going on and there's even like an Australian couple that I sat down with and we just got talking about how they've been here enjoying their time. So I will say getting lost in a place that you don't know might seem terrifying at points, but at the same time, super exhilarating and fun. Well, to round it out, I simply go celebrate by walking around nature or any accessible and safe area in the city and enjoy people watching and window shopping because you can look at clothing just as long as you don't go buy anything. All right, I'm up next. I have June 23rd and it's Pink Flamingo Day. Oh. But not just any flamingo. It's those tacky, molded, form plastic atrocities on wire legs. Perfect. Stuck into people's 
lawn. Perfect. <laughs> yes, those things that are now pop icons. They are. <laughs> so they don't call the day, you know, Pink Flamingo Lawn Ornament Day. No, it's just Pink Flamingo Day. So there is an actual creator of the Pink Flamingo. Okay. Living in Florida, pink flamingos and just flamingos like that in general, fake plastic flamingos are all over the place. Um, right, so but, somebody had to make them, had to design that idea. Yeah, and I guess I never really would have thought of it as being like an individual. But if I were to think about it, I would think about it kind of just as a company. Decided that they would do it. Well, there was a creator and he has the most perfect name for creating the flamingo. He is called Don Featherstone. So he was an art grad and he actually worked for a plastic company back in the day. I'll talk a little bit more about that because he worked his way up through it. But when he first started out with the company, being an art grad, they approached him and this was post-World War II. So people are just kind of getting back into life again. And it was a very interesting time too because that was the advent of subdivisions. Right. Back to the Future would be a great thing to rewatch or, or watch if you haven't seen it before because that really shows just kind of like the starkness and the reality of subdivisions. I don't know if you remember the scene, but they they basically just had, you know, cleared just lots as far as that I could see and they were starting to build on them and everything and it was just a new concept and very odd but most of the subdivisions I mean it kind of depends like I guess a true subdivision that is not necessarily gated but has a title to it and has you know, houses definitely you drive in one entrance and you know that you're in this subdivision a lot of the houses do look the same called Cookie, cookie cutter, cutter. Yeah, yeah cookie cutter houses we grew up in some subdivisions that definitely were nice because they had character to them all the houses were a little bit different the original ones were pretty much cookie cutter houses so this plastic company was like we need to do something you know people are depressed we just had the war we're coming out of it we've got the excitement that it's over but you know people are still coming out of that and they're coming into these mass concepts, something new that they've never seen before, and they're buying a house in this these beautiful subdivisions, but it looks exactly like the neighbor's house. So they wanted something to distinguish people's houses, but be fun and festive at the same time. So they asked him to come up with something, basically, for that. He took some National Geographic photographs, and he designed two pink flamingos that they actually created molds from. So the original pink flamingos were made from those original two molds. I don't know in my research, it didn't say like if he created two different types or styles and then they chose one, but he actually did two different molds. So he created it in 1957, but it became such an icon that the mayor of his town Leo Minster, Massachusetts, the mayor's name was Dean Mazzarella, actually gave it an official holiday in 2007. When he did pass away, a friend and colleague of his 
basically was like, I guess people were saying, hey, you know, it was kitschy, it's, it's tacky, all that and everything. Basically defended Featherstone and he said, you know what? If it makes people laugh and brings a smile to everybody's face and that's what he liked. He really loved the fact that he created this pink flamingo. Whether you loved it or you hated it, it still got people talking and uh, was was definitely a creation out there that either you know made people definitely happy or not people grumpy, but they still talked it about it in a happy way even when they didn't like it type thing. It's definitely filtered into like the general consciousness too. It might as well have something that isn't completely written off as being like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. If some people are enjoying it, I mean, some people are kind of like, oh, it's okay. Then that's a pretty good, you know, outcome I to know. it. Definitely he left a legacy. I doubt he really intended for this plastic thing to leave a legacy, but he did. So the plastic company was actually called Union Products, and he eventually created 750 different products for his employer, wow. Union Products. And he eventually worked his way up to president. Good for him. I know. Starting... In the 1980s, he actually stamped his name into the true flamingos that he created so you could tell an original from a copy. Since that time, the company has produced over 2 million flamingos, at least by 2006 when they did this research. And that was six years after he actually retired, so they continued to make the flamingos. But then um, they, they ceased operations, and another company... I can't remember if they acquired it or they just started up another company, but now they're making them again, but under a different name. It's not Union Products anymore. Okay. Not his original ones, technically. Think of them as pink, and that's what he thought of, especially when he saw the National Geographic picture, but they are not really pink. Did they're, you know that? They're white. Well, okay, so they're gray. Yeah, okay. But, so they're born with gray feathers, and then their diet turns them red or pinkish and that is because they feed on the shrimp and blue-green algae and it contains carotenes in it so that's a natural pink or reddish orange dye you may see a gray flamingo mm -hmm. and it may not just be a baby it's not getting adequate food or it's eating something different I worked at SeaWorld and had to learn about flamingos back then we did learn that they got their color from what they ate sure. but we never learned exactly why so this is totally new to me and the research that i did the pigment is extracted from their food but it dissolves into fat and then that fat is deposited into the feathers okay so ultimately there could be any number of color of flamingos which is a weird thought because of depending on what they eat, whatever is absorbed into that fat. But they also said it could be a mix of a pink and a gray because while it's being absorbed in, the new feathers actually take it in. But if they aren't getting a lot of that coloring or that food while they're growing those new feathers, they could have some gray. Kind of, I guess like me, you know, I'm getting a little bit of gray in the hair there. You're a flamingo, Mom. <laughs> I am a flamingo. So once again, darker and lighter depends on how much carotene in their diet. And I did get that from LiveScience.com. So they had some interesting facts on that. So uh, at SeaWorld, we did, you know, we had to give out 
trivia about the flamingos and we got a crash course so basically if you um are an educator out there that's what they call their tour guides basically right. and they're they're people that work at the exhibits you are given a crash course for four weeks and you are immersed every day minute by minute into um marine biology basically learning about all the animals um ecosystems different things like that and uh then you take all that knowledge and there are scripts written for each of the exhibits. If I, now this is, mind you, 20 plus years ago. So there are scripts written for each of the exhibits, but then also you could, you know, fill in with facts that you knew, but you also had to be able to answer all the facts. However, when you took a behind the scenes tour, those were actually written by the tour guides themselves. There were no scripts whatsoever. Um, basically, you know, it was a two hour tour and you would take people into the back areas, but also through the park. And there were certain stops that we had to make, but we could talk about any of the animals, any of the foliage, anything along the way, um, anything that was just interesting. If there was some interesting architecture or a new show and things like that, uh, there were also artifacts that we were able to pull out like shark's teeth and things, but it was all totally written by the tour guides. So if that is the same and you actually go and take a behind the scenes tour out there, then just know that your tour guide, um, probably wrote the script. But that could have changed too. But um, but I think one thing that people did expect from tour guides, tacky jokes. <laughs> okay, yes. So do you have any good tacky flamingo yeah, jokes? Yeah, so we did tell stupid flamingo jokes. Are you ready for this? I don't know if I am, nor is the audience, <laughs> but we might as well go with it. Okay, so why are flamingos such good patients? Does that have anything to do with them standing on one leg all day? No. I don't know. They're good at waiting. Okay, uh. look, that involves <laughs> their legs. Uh-huh. Okay, why do flamingos stand on one leg? Because the other leg is tired? Mm, close. If they lift at the other, they fall down. Ah. Uh. <laughs> ha ha ha. Uh, ha 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 ha. Uh, yeah, so I had several terrible jokes along the tour, and I got groans. There was, uh, there were speakers all around the park, and they were hidden in rocks, so we always said that was the rock music. Yeah. All right, any others <laughs> while you're at it? or Did you um, hear about the guy who, you know, lost his left arm to a shark? What about him? He'd be all right. He'd be all right. Yeah, yeah. We ended at the shark encounter. <laughs> and believe me, I had doozies for the shark encounter. Oh, I imagine. Anyway. Um, so, let's see. I hope just like the quote at the beginning, you know, he, Featherstone, really wanted to bring fun and bring a smile to people's face. So hopefully my tacky jokes, just like the tacky flamingos, did the same thing. So celebrating uh, Flamingo Day. So this is very interesting. I mean, I knew about it, but I didn't know that there was actually a name for it. And look, do I even have my paper on it? Oh, I don't have my paper. I don't know where it went. But it's called flocking. Um, oh, thank you. It has just come across my desk, the newswire. Okay, so. Your intern brought it to you. <laughs> yes, thank you, intern Bryce over there. 
so I'm being, you know, once again in Florida, and it's a thing to have flamingos. I knew that, you know, they used them for charity a lot. And um, basically they come and they put them in a yard and then get money for that charity. Well, I didn't know there was actually a term for it. And it's called flamingo flocking. And uh, so this is how you can celebrate Flamingo Day. If you need a quick fundraising idea for community, church group, school, consider having a flamingo flocking fundraiser. Hit as many houses as your budget and flock allow. What a great way to share the long flamingo love. So what you actually do is the organizers go around and they, uh, they pre-order a flock of flamingos for an unsuspecting house. And then what? they go and they leave. <laughs> what? They just litter the whole yard with flamingos. Now, I've seen this. I have seen it for charity events, but I'll actually have to say that I've seen it more for uh, baby shower announcements. I don't know if that's a thing in other states. Let us know in social media if this happens in your other states. But you'll be driving by, you know, someone's yard, and all of a sudden you see, like, 50 blue flamingos or 50 pink flamingos so um they, okay so not real flamingo <laughs> no no no, no. These, these are the fake the the flamingo day flamingos okay the, okay the tacky <laughs> plastic flamingos <laughs> but so they they'll put them in their uh, yard for announcements they'll do white ones um for engagements and things like that but the the charity event actually is kind of um it's like ding dong ditch in a way <laughs> they basically you know come in and they put down a whole flock in a yard it could be three it could be 50 um and then to have them removed you pay for the flock that's and then extortion it goes, <laughs> it goes to charity but i did not know i mean i knew that and i knew that you're paying for um for them to be there and they usually last they said from 5 a.m till uh, that evening, so you know they come and do it in the dark. But I didn't know that they could actually sell flamingo insurance too. So in the neighborhood or whatever, if you don't want to have flamingo flocked yard, then um, you can <laughs> buy insurance with a charity. Is that like something that you just bring up casually at an HOA meeting? You're like, so guys, <laughs> the no soliciting sign did not do. I guess so. I think that most of the communities know it's going to happen. And obviously, it's usually, um, like, a, once again, a church or an organization. So they're going to know the event is going on and that probably, you know, they're going to wake up one morning to a whole flock of flamingos out there. And they suggest that if you are going to do this, that you have at least three or four flocks to be able to put out each day, not just one house a day. But anyway, so... You can arrange a flamingo flocking uh, for charity, or you could just surprise a friend or maybe an enemy and go take 50 tacky flamingos in their yard. Um, and you have then, to make sure that they don't uh, appreciate, you know, the kitsch to it all. <laughs> yeah. You're going for your enemy. That's true. All right, so we can we plan out for this upcoming... National Flamingo Day. Can we plan out who we're going to flamingo flock? Yeah, you know, we should. 
Maybe they need to give us suggestions of who we should flamingo flock. Oh, just anybody? <laughs> a celebrity? Are we going for Kanye West? Uh, well, we'd have to travel kind of far. We've got other celebrities. Oh, we can pay area. people <laughs> for that. Yeah, okay, so interesting. So, yeah, when we come back in July with our next set of dates, we'll have to tell you if we actually did that and who who got it. Yeah. <laughs> You've got the last one. Yes, I do. And the final day for both this episode and to close off the June series for 2019, it is Paul Bunyan Day on June 28th. So I want you to first to imagine yourself being a reporter for Life magazine in 1937, okay? And you are told that you are going to be going out in January to Minnesota to go check out a community-driven event in Bemidji, and it is going to be celebrating winter sports and festivities. And when you drive up to this festival lot, you find just offside the road two what look to be like paper mache sculptures. They're unique looking. <laughs> They have square features, they've got square shoulders, faces, and torsos, and one of them is an 18-foot-tall giant wearing red flannel with black stripes, like thick black stripes, some blue jeans, and a cap, while the other sculpture is a sky-blue ox. (laughs) So... You, as a reporter, have come for these festivities, what I assume to be the festivities, but you actually are attracted to this sculpture work that's going on. And you take a photo of it, and you plaster it onto the front cover of this upcoming Life magazine. And you are actually going to be talking about one of the first automotive advertisements for roadside attractions, a new future way to sell a town or a company its, you know, wares, essentially. And Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox were one of the pioneering sculptures in roadside attractions. (laughs) There was also another one that's pretty popular that, um, came out around the same time to do with dinosaurs. But since the 1980s, these statues have actually been recognized as a natural, not natural, but as a historical monument in America. Now, Paul Bunyan, you know who he is, right? Yeah. (laughs) So what is his profession? Well, lumberjack. (laughs) Yes, he is a lumberjack, and uh, Babe the Blue Ox is... An ox that is his companion and their origins are quintessentially american i mean most americans i think at least have heard the name and maybe can recognize that there being this iconic lumberjack that is towering and can be seen across america in other forms as roadside attractions too his stories travel a line between canada and the united states And his name actually is very interesting if you look at it, because it 
really connects with French Canada. And for me, I'm really into anything French related. And so I've been getting more and more into Quebecois culture. And it seems that Paul Bunyan, even though he is American, at least in the most spirited of ways, actually comes from Quebec. It might be, you know, as many myths do, there's not one particular place that he comes from or where maybe the name is originated from. But even maybe going back a bit further, the stories of Paul Bunyan might be traced back to European stories. So like the French Canadians would have brought it from their French history with uh, uh, Rabelais' Gargantua and Punta Grel, stories about a giant who uh, liked to drink a lot and get into a bunch of different kind of like mythical situations, magical situations. When you get out of the American realm, it kind of goes into like, okay, it might be just a giant, and that's who Paul Bunyan was, and how he got linked to it. But even though he is French-Canadian, looking at it historically, even the Canadians look at Paul Bunyan as a very American ideal. I tried looking up Québécois articles, and they kept referring to him as an American spirit. So he has this kind of larger-than-life attitude about him that Americans also keep with them. And for Paul Bunyan's stories, they were talked about in lumberjack circles, and that is why it kind of follows like this Canadian line. It's talked about in Oregon, in Michigan, Minnesota, Maine... So anywhere that lumberjacks were, which were relatively the pine forests of North, of North America, would be talking about him. Paul Bunyan kind of lived in this like analogous world to us, if not, you know, superficially sharing it. But the shared transcontinental knowledge that's you know shared by the lumberjack circles was really an important aspect for one man. And his name was William B. Lawhead. Lawhead was given a project to promote a new loggers mill in California for the Red River Lumber Company that can connect old and new buyers alike. You know, they had old clientele in Mississippi and Missouri, but they also had these new ones in California, and they basically wanted to market it saying, hey, the pine here is just as good as the old. And they went ahead and got Lawhead to uh, come up with this advertising campaign to say, keep it all together, essentially. Think about wanting to keep things together, shared history and commonality, and he got the Paul Bunyan stories. Lawhead had his first attempt at running pamphlets in 1914 with the story of Paul Bunyan. But they didn't really go over, apparently, very well with the manufacturers and lumber dealers. <laughs> I guess it never really breached the circles of lumberjacks and their stories and their communities. But during his second round of pamphlets, the newspapers got a hold of it, and it started circulating into libraries and schools. And the biggest market for Paul Bunyan were children. And the behemoth of a man also is very much linked to the run of these pamphlets because a lot of the stories 
were exaggerated. Most of the stories that maybe we know as Paul Bunyan were created during this run for the advertising campaign, including the idea of a lot of topographical landmarks of the USA having been made by Paul Bunyan himself. My favorite is of him actually creating the Grand Canyon by dragging his axe behind him. But you also got the one of Mount Hood in Oregon after he was done using a campfire and he wanted to stoke it out. So he put, you know, several different rocks into kind of like a triangular shape and that's how you got Mount Hood in Oregon. Or the 10,000 lakes in Minnesota that were formed by Paul Bunyan's footsteps and later on the water would seep in. My favorite one that they actually talked about, and this is an original Paul Bunyan story, most of these stories that come back to the 1870s, maybe a little bit prior, and this one's called the pea soup story. The hot pea soup story, I must say. So, near the Round River camp was a hot spring into which the tote teamster returning one day from town with a load of peas, dumped the whole load by accident. Most men would have regarded the peas as a dead loss, but not so Paul. He promptly added the proper amount of pepper and salt to the mixture and had enough hot pea soup to last the crew all winter. When his men were working too far away from camp to return the dinner, he got the soup to them by freezing it upon the ends of sticks and sending it in that shape. So that's one of the original stories of Paul Bunyan. So as for Paul Bunyan and his height, he, in all the original stories, relate to something about him being about seven feet tall, and so is his ox babe. So that was one exaggeration, again, back to Lawhead's pamphlet run. And as just like a final note of kind of this rundown of stories about Paul Bunyan. I thought it was very interesting that even with the contemporaneous events of the 1800s, as lumberjacks were, you know, just going through the daily life and they would hear something about in the news or whatever, it would actually get added into kind of the mythos of Paul Bunyan. And one of them being the winter of the blue snow in from 1886 to 87. So the story is basically about how Babe became blue. He was staying blue from blue ice. It was just like a really cold winter. And for some reason, all the snow was actually physically blue. And Babe the Blue Ox was outside and got stained by it all. But in all reality, actually the winter of the blue snow was a big hit for the cattle industry in America because it was a very brutal winter where a lot of the cows got frostbite and turned blue. Oh, wow. So it was interesting to see the parallels between the modern going-ons of the time and then actually incorporating them into some kind of a mythological stance. Those were kind of all of the facts that I had about Paul Bunyan, but I was just thinking of different ways that you could celebrate Paul Bunyan Day. And every website said, look up a story about him. And if you 
maybe do a little bit more research into something uh, related to him, like say, oh, I want to learn more about the Grand Canyon thing. You might find a story, but otherwise they're very kind of like highlights and pinpoints and whatever. But also, I thought, why not take it up a notch? Why not do something a little bit more active and less passive? So I'm thinking to celebrate Paul Bunyan Day, go ahead and dress up as a lumberjack, drink some adult or kid-friendly cider, as he would have, and play pin the tail on Babe the Blue Ox. (laughs) Or even possibly make some paper mache sculptures that I'm sure will not look as unique as less unique than the ones that were originally established in 37. And they were not paper mache, they were concrete, but that's the best description that I can put to them. Oh, well, another fun week, and uh, gosh, interesting, and got to do it in the dark, and so you never know what can go on when you're taping your broadcast, so. I guess not. Thank you guys for joining us again. In uh, another two weeks, we'll be hosting another episode, and we'll be moving on to our July series, part one and part two. So look out for eight new holidays in the next coming month. Visit visit our blog and some of our social media, because we have other holidays instead of just the four that we have on the podcast. But we try to keep up with posting at least once a day. They go out on our blog and Twitter every day. Um, some other social media, not as much, but uh, a lot of have fun facts. Not as much as we have in our podcast, but still some fun facts. Yes, exactly. Oh. Thanks, guys. And yeah. See you in two weeks. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us in our hop through the silly and strange celebration. We'll be back again in two weeks with another assortment of holidays to inspire new traditions. You can follow us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny on Facebook and Instagram, or Don't Tell the EAS1 on Twitter. And for emails, you can use Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. See, See you, you next time. time.